0: You know, if you were raised in church like I was, you, I hope, have a great appreciation for how blessed you really are. I was blessed to be able to be uh, introduced to Jesus at an early age, hearing about him in Sunday school and at church. uh, Every time the doors of church were open, it seemed we were there. We'd go on vacations and visit my grandparents, and we'd go to their church on Sunday. And it was just good to hear the good news of Jesus Christ at as a uh, as a child, and as a teenager, and as a young adult, growing up through the years, you know most people these days it's a little bit more difficult to learn about Jesus Christ. Most people today uh, don't grow up going to church and don't have parents that tell them about God. Uh, most people, of course, don't even live in the Bible Belt, for there's a church on every corner. Uh, but even if all of those things were true, and it was somehow more difficult for someone today to learn about Jesus, they would still have an advantage in one way, in one respect, over generations before. And uh, that's because there's so much more availability and ease in being able to worship, or excuse me, research topics. I mean, today, if you want to learn just about anything in the world, you can look it up on the Internet. Uh, The problem with the Internet, I don't know if you've experienced this or not, But some information on the Internet is not accurate. It might be a a shock to you. I know it's sort of hard to believe, but uh, it's true. Sometimes you just can't trust the things that you see on the Internet. You know, And if you can be misled about something, uh, let's say Abraham Lincoln, you might be able to be misled about Jesus Christ as well if you don't look in the right places, if you don't research in the right areas. And additionally today, there's just so much more noise. Out there. And by noise, I mean, we live in an age where we're just constantly bombarded by news. And it used to be that you would be able to hear about some goat up in the Himalayas only if you listen to public radio, and the show All Things Considered was on. And they would have someone with some sound effects in the background. We're watching a goat, it's descending down the mountain. I mean, you just can't get good quality radio like that unless, you know, your taxpayer money pays for it. So, uh, But today, everything that makes the news everywhere is available to you through the Internet and through the constant media bombardment of news that we receive. And most of the news that you hear about, of course, is incredibly negative. But God did not intend humans he did not design humans to bear the burden of everything around the world and yet that's what we have today we have everything around the world some tragedy happens in albuquerque we hear about it here and we we feel about we feel it in our own hearts in our own lives every hardship or every injustice whether real or imagined we hear on the news becomes just another piece of noise. And all of that noise has a tendency to drag down us spiritually. And so the most important thing that we could ever learn, the most important person that we could ever discover might just be drowned out in all of the noise that we experience today. But, you know, for most of human history, they didn't really have that problem. It wasn't that way for most of human history. People in in ancient times were blissfully unaware of things that happened around the world and sometimes even things that happened in the next village. And, And so unlike today, every single day was not filled with what someone believed to be the latest crisis. In fact, back when the New Testament was being written, most days that people experienced were quite mundane. So whether you were a farmer or a fisherman or whatever... Your profession might be. Your day would simply look like you'd get up, you'd do your thing, you'd go back home and repeat the next day. And uh, it was quite mundane. And so when something unusual happened in the village or the town where you lived, it was big news for the entire community. Typically, these would be things like a baby was being born. If a baby was born, it was a huge event. The entire community would come out and celebrate. If uh, a wedding happened, uh, again, the entire village would come and be a part of that wedding. Or if a famous person came to town, it was a big communal event as well. Well, one day in, in Luke chapter 19, and that's the passage that we'll be studying today, one day Jesus came into the town of Jericho. And this was probably less than two weeks before he would die by crucifixion. In Jerusalem. He entered the town of Jericho and he had become quite famous by this time. Jesus had healed lepers and Jesus had cast out demons and Jesus had taught people. And just before he entered the town, as he was making his way into town, Jesus encountered a man by the name of Bartimaeus, a blind man. And Jesus performed the greatest miracle that rabbis said. ...could be ever performed, and that was restoring sight to the blind. Ancient rabbis would have debates about what is the greatest miracle that God could do. Being raised from the dead came in second place. Restoring sight to the blind came in first. And so right at the end of Jesus' ministry, Jesus goes into Jericho. He encounters this blind man, Bartimaeus, and he restores sight to blind Bartimaeus. Well, by now, Jesus is walking through the village of Jericho, and there's just commotion everywhere. Everyone wants to see this Jesus, who just completed this miracle, who just accomplished this great thing, who's been all over the place, who's been in the news uh, as far as news goes, which was all word of mouth by then, uh, or at that time. But he, when he entered Jericho, it was pretty much a very dramatic scene it was a tremendous event the entire town came out to greet him because someone like Jesus someone as famous as Jesus just doesn't come to Jericho every day and we read in verses 1 and 2 of Luke 19 he entered Jericho and he was passing through and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus he was a chief tax collector and he was rich now, we know from last week's sermon when we encountered Matthew, or sometimes called Levi in the other Gospels, that uh, tax, being a tax collector and being rich are connected. And we know the reason why, because sometimes they would overcharge people, they would dupe people, they would rip off people, and uh, they would defraud people of money and keep the profits. And so, if you can imagine someone who builds his wealth by ripping people off and, as a tax collector... How much more would Zacchaeus, being a chief tax collector, be wealthy? And so Zacchaeus was a wealthy man. He was a tax collector. Now, it's interesting to me, when Luke wrote this gospel, the gospel that bears his name, he included a lot of stories about wealthy people and a lot of teachings about wealth that sometimes you don't find in the other gospels. It's as if Luke had a special... Uh, understanding and ministry toward those who were rich and those who were poor. Luke wanted people to know that God loves everyone. God loves the poor, but God loves the rich too. And it, we, all know, we all know the difficulties of being poor. I mean, when you're poor, you just don't have enough. You, you lack what you need. And so it's very obvious, but Luke tells us that there are difficulties with being rich too. And the main difficulty, the main problem with being wealthy is that when you're wealthy you have a tendency to dismiss your need for God. You have a tendency to kick God to the side. Being wealthy is a very dangerous condition, spiritually. And you know, Nobody ever thinks it out loud. Nobody ever says, You know, God, now that I've acquired this wealth, I'm just going to make you number two. I'm going to pursue money above all things. And so God just, you're going to have to step aside, get out of being in the throne, get out of being in the number one position, because now I'm going to pursue God. No 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 one ever says that. But that's what happens. You see... When a love of money begins to creep into your life, it creeps in very slowly. It's like the proverbial frog in the kettle. It gets boiled alive because it's turned up. The heat is turned up degree by degree. And that's what it's like when a love of money creeps into your heart. That love of money slowly, imperceptibly, becomes who you are. Or more accurately, you become it. You become a lover of wealth. And so in Luke's gospel, Luke understood this, and in his gospel, he includes a lot of sayings that Jesus had and a lot of teachings about the danger of wealth. Warning after warning. In Luke 6, 25, Jesus said, Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Jesus said in Luke 9, 25, What does it benefit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? In Luke 12, Jesus tells the parable of the rich fool. You know that parable. The rich fool was a man who had so much wealth and things were going so well that his barns had become full of all of his grain. And he had no no more room to store the incredible harvest that he was receiving. And so he said to himself, I'm going to tear down my barns and build bigger barns so I can have even more wealth and even more grain. But that very night, death came upon him. And the rich fool had to stand before God, and God asked him a question. God said, all these things you have prepared, all of this grain, all of these barns, Whose will they be? And the obvious answer is they won't be the man's anymore. The man is dead. And Jesus concluded the parable of the rich fool by saying these words. That's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. A few verses later in Luke 12, Jesus says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. A lot of people think that Jesus was saying, Oh, well, wherever your heart is, that's where you put your money. No, no, no. He was saying just the opposite. He was saying, Wherever you put your money, your heart follows. Wherever you invest your money, that's where your heart goes. Because that's the way God made the heart. And so it's a very dangerous thing to be wealthy because if you put all of your money into building more wealth, your heart is all about building more wealth. And then in Luke 18, in the chapter just previous to the one that we'll study today, Jesus has an incredible encounter. He has an encounter with a man who epitomizes, who personifies every danger that Luke has been telling us about through Jesus' words. Jesus has this encounter with a rich, young ruler. And the rich, young ruler seemed to have it all together. The rich, young ruler came to Jesus and he said, good teacher, what what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gave him a little bit of a test. And Jesus said, essentially, have you kept all of the Ten Commandments that have to do with your relationship with other humans? You know, Commandments 5 through 9. Have you kept the commandment that says, do not commit adultery? Oh, yeah, I've kept that commandment. Don't murder. Check. Got it. Don't steal. Don't lie. Honor your father and mother. And the the man said, I've kept all of these since, since I was young. I've kept all of these. But here's the problem. And Jesus knew it, but the young man did not. The problem is there's a tenth commandment. And the tenth commandment says, do not covet. And that was the young man's problem. He coveted. And so Jesus gave him a simple test to see where his heart resided. Jesus said, here's what you do. Go out and sell all of your possessions, every last one. Give it all to the poor. When you do that, you're going to have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And this is what we read in Luke 18, verse 23. But when he, the young man, had heard these things, he became very sad. For he was extremely rich. And what gets me is the next two verses. It says in Luke 18, verse 24 and verse 25, and we overlook the first phrase of these verses. The first phrase is, to me, almost chilling, We always skip right to the part where Jesus talks about rich man and the camel and all that stuff. But that very first phrase, the rich young man, the rich young ruler, standing right before Jesus, was very sad because he couldn't pass the test that Jesus directed him to. And Jesus looked right at him. And these were Jesus' words. He's talking to the man. Jesus is not talking to the crowd. He's talking to the man, dead on. And he says to the man, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. I don't know about you, but if I was standing before Jesus, and he said that to me, about me, I think it would absolutely break my heart. And Jesus continued. He said, for it is easier for a a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. I mean, you're standing right before Jesus and he tells you, You can't come. You can't follow him. Because you love your stuff. Too much. And then in the next verse, the people around Jesus who heard it, they said, then who can be saved? I mean, if God's, it was believed that God's favor was upon rich people and if God favored someone and that made him wealthy then and if God already favored him that, that wealthy person must be a child of God right because he, he's experiencing the blessings the favor of God and so certainly that man must be saved and so who then can be saved if a rich man cannot be saved and Jesus replied the things that are impossible with people are possible with God well if you were to ask me, going through Luke's gospel, if I'd read all of that, I would, I would come to the conclusion with all these warnings, warning after warning after warning after warning about being wealthy. And finally, we have a, a tangible, evidential person who personified wealth. And that guy, who did everything right except one, could not qualify to enter into God's kingdom I would come to the conclusion that it is impossible. It is absolutely impossible for anyone who has wealth to be saved. But then we meet Zacchaeus. We encounter Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was very wealthy as well. And Zacchaeus wanted so desperately to see this famous man who could restore sight to the blind. He wanted to see Jesus, but he had a hard time doing that. And that day, it was quite undignified for grown men to run like Zacchaeus did. But we read in Luke chapter... 19, that when Zacchaeus learned that Jesus was coming to town, that's exactly what he did. It says in verse 3, Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was, and he was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead, and he climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see Jesus, for Jesus was about to pass through that way. You know, very undignified for a businessman like Zacchaeus to act that way. Men in that day didn't run, didn't run for anybody unless their life was in danger. And men certainly didn't climb trees. No man in his right mind would ever do that. But that's what Zacchaeus did because when you're desperate, you don't care about social norms. Zacchaeus was desperate to see Jesus. And when you're desperate, by the way, to see God in your life, You don't care what other people think. You just don't care what other people think. If what other people think are keeping you from God, I would just say you're not desperate enough for God. If you're worried about what Jim and Jill and Judy might think about you following after God, if you're worried about them calling you a religious nut or whatever else because you decide, you think you might want to follow Jesus, then your mind... Is wishy-washy, just being blown around by whatever noise comes, but comes your way. You need to settle it in your mind whether or not you're going to pursue God. It doesn't matter what other people think. But we live in a time where everyone seems to want attention. You know, everyone wants to be liked. Our entire identities these days are totally tied up in how many followers we have on social media. I mean, that's just so important, isn't it? You know, And so we don't want to be criticized. We'd hate for anyone to criticize us. And so if you take the wrong political position or you support the wrong cause, you're going to be criticized. You're going to be shunned. You're going to be an outcast. Well, Zacchaeus didn't care about any of that. He was already an outcast. Nobody liked him anyway. And so Zacchaeus didn't care about all the criticism. He just wanted to see Jesus. And if it meant he had to run to see Jesus, he'd run. If it meant he had to climb a tree to see Jesus, he'd climb a tree. And he'd get criticized in the midst of it. And he didn't care. So he ran on ahead where Jesus was headed, climbed up a sycamore tree, because Zacchaeus was a a wee little man, as the song goes. And, And in Luke 19, verse 5, we read, When Jesus came to the place, he looked up, and he saw Zacchaeus there, and he said to him, Zacchaeus, Hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Now, this is an incredible event because Jesus didn't typically have people climbing trees to see him. And that day, when Jesus came to town, if there was a big crowd, everyone would just come rushing up to Jesus and press in upon him and talk to him and beg for him to do something. But it was face-to-face. But here, this this got Jesus' attention. For someone to be so undignified as to climb a tree. And perhaps Jesus knew who he was through a divine uh, just divine knowledge of Zacchaeus. Or perhaps Zacchaeus was famous, famous enough as the chief tax collector. That everyone sort of knew who he was. I don't know. But Jesus looked at Zacchaeus. And he was so impressed by Zacchaeus' lack of dignity. And wanting to see Jesus. That he said, this man. Up here. In his mind, Jesus was saying, This man needs to see me. He needs to see me. And so Jesus said, I must stay at your house. And that's an unusual statement for Jesus to say, I must stay at your house. But Jesus was on a divinely ordained mission and he knew it. Jesus knew what awaited him the next week crucifixion, death on a cross. To pay for the sins of all mankind. And he knew, Jesus knew, that that death on the cross would purchase salvation for all who believed. But in the meantime, he's got a man so desperate to believe in him that he's climbing a tree. I've got to stay at his house. Because today, salvation is about to come. For Zacchaeus. In verses 6 and 7 we read, and Zacchaeus hurried down and came down, and he, and he received him gladly. When they saw it, uh-oh, we got they. There's no greater enemy to your life than they. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, he has gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. they probably groaned like that too. And we dealt with this criticism last week. It's the same criticism that Jesus faced when he encountered Matthew, and Matthew started to follow Jesus, you know, another, another tax collector. Have you ever noticed that some criticisms never change? I mean, this is the same criticism Jesus faced on other occasions, and that's the way it's going to be in your life too. Some criticisms never change. Listen, if you're doing the right thing, you're going to get criticized. And you're going to hear the same criticism that you've heard before. So just keep doing what you're doing. If you're serving God to the best of your ability just ignore the criticisms. It's tough to do sometimes but just ignore the criticisms. Because most of the time the people who offer the criticisms are have less experience and knowledge than you do about the area that they criticize you over. And that's what we have here. These critics of Jesus presumably had lived in Jericho. And if that's the case, they would have known Zacchaeus. But yet they never loved him. They never respected him. They never honored him to the degree that Jesus did after meeting Zacchaeus once. And yet somehow, they feel like they've earned the right to criticize how Jesus loves people, to criticize how Jesus respects and honors people. Listen, your most vocal critics are most often those who can't, or won't, fill in the blank. Those who can't or won't will sit on the sidelines and criticize you for doing it, whatever it is. And so, you just got to move on. You cannot allow unjustified criticism to paralyze you. I've seen it so many times. I've seen people live their entire lives absolutely paralyzed because if they take a step to the right, they're criticized. If they take a step to the left, they're criticized. And so they do nothing, hoping to never be criticized by anybody. But what happens is what's going on behind the scenes that you may not realize is that your critics simply want to control you. It's all about control. And they somehow feel power. If they can shape you this way or move you that way. You just have to move on. Jesus didn't even respond to the criticism. He had heard it before. Zacchaeus did. Zacchaeus responded. Look at verse 8. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions, by the way, He's not saying half of his earnings that year. Half of everything he owned, half of my possessions, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Zacchaeus pledges half of everything he owned as a free will offering, a love offering to the Lord that he's going to give to the poor. And he's going to repay any defrauded person four times as much as he defrauded them by. You know, in the Old Testament, the law, you know what the law was? If you defraud somebody and you're found guilty, you got to pay them back 120%. percent you got to pay them back everything you defrauded plus an extra 20. 120%. Zacchaeus doesn't care about the law. Zacchaeus says, I'll pay back 400%. It doesn't matter. I want to make it right. This is tangible evidence Of repentance. You see, when you truly meet the Lord, your priorities absolutely change. Zacchaeus didn't care anymore about gaining wealth after wealth, money after money, more money than he could ever hope to spend. He didn't care about that anymore. His covetousness became contentment, he was content. With how God could bless him. Let me ask you a question. In what tangible ways, evidential ways, has your repentance borne fruit? Since you've come to meet Jesus, how exactly has your life changed? How would you prove that in a court of law? There should be something tangibly different about you now then what your life would be like if you had not met Jesus. And Jesus responded to Zacchaeus' repentance. He said in Luke 19, verses 9 and 10, two absolutely beautiful verses. Jesus said, Today, salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. When Jesus said, that Zacchaeus is the son of Abraham. He's not talking about Zacchaeus as a biological descendant of Abraham. He probably already was. He's talking about faith. Because in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Old Testament, Abraham is the person in the Hebrew Scriptures who most famously modeled what it meant to have faith in God. Genesis fifteen six says that God took Abraham's faith and he turned it into righteousness. And so Abraham was no longer unrighteous before God. He was righteous. How? How did all of Abraham's sins get washed away? How, how did all of Abraham's sins become, become neutralized, if you will? How did Abraham's unrighteousness flip over and turn into righteousness? How did that happen? Genesis fifteen six tells us. Because Abraham had faith in God. Abraham believed what God said. Zacchaeus, he had a whole lot of unrighteousness in his life. I mean, he had defrauded people. His wealth had kept him from God for so long. But now, now he's met Jesus. Now he has faith in Jesus. And what did God do? God turned Zacchaeus' faith into righteousness. So that when God looks at Zacchaeus. God doesn't see sin. God sees righteousness. And that is the power of faith in your life. That's what God can do for you. The truth be known, you have a lot of unrighteousness in your heart. But if you'll have faith in Jesus, God will turn all of that unrighteousness into righteousness. How does he do it? By having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. When God looks at you, he will see the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He won't see the unrighteousness of David Rhodes or he won't see the unrighteousness of you. He'll see the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus came. He said it in verse 10. To seek and to save that which is lost. Does that describe you today? Does that describe somebody on your heart today? Is there somebody on your heart that you'd say today, this person is lost and Jesus has come to seek him out? Are you lost yourself? Are you in need of salvation? What you need to do if you're lost, what that person that you're thinking about in your heart needs to do if they're lost is simply follow the example of Zacchaeus. Have faith in Jesus and then show the fruits of repentance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you that Zacchaeus has shown us a very important truth. That if we simply meet Jesus and have faith in him, Jesus will change our lives. And Father, I pray that the life of anybody in this room today or anyone listening to this sermon today might be changed simply by having faith in the Lord. And Father, I pray that we might help and assist in any way that we can as a church, that person as they grow in their faith, grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.